Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 plus years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion and welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast. Super excited to have a very, very dear friend, a professional associate and someone who I would consider a mentor and consultant in the industry, John Fury, joining us today. John is a managing partner and the founder of Advisor Growth Strategies. John started the firm to do what motivates him and what he loves best in our industry, and that is to help other business owners advance the professionalism of their firm. And since doing so, has had tremendous success. I know John through our relationship with the Alliance for Registered Investment Advisors. He is the organizer and founder and really the, the leader of that group. He spends a tremendous amount of time collaborating, I think, with many, many successful firms in the industry as they look to evaluate their business models and advance their business models. And he's also known as a thought leader and contributor as he's written in many, many publications and, and white papers not the least of which to include the Wall Street Journal, Investment News, Barron's, RIA Business, Financial Planning Magazine, just to name a few. John and his wife, Julie, live in Phoenix, Arizona, where they're raising their family and doing some great things, not only in the industry, but in the community. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce my good friend and one of my mentors, John Furry. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for the the very, very kind introduction. Appreciate that. It's heartfelt, my friend, heartfelt. So it's great to have you here today. I thought maybe we should start off just by getting folks to learn a little bit about you and your evolution, where your career started, and what led you to the forming of your firm today, Advisor Growth Strategies. Yeah, happy to take you through it. I've been you know, kind of a lifer in the industry. I'm going to date myself a little bit, I guess, but I am from New York. I actually started out on Wall Street underwriting municipal bonds with the Texas Instruments Calculator, if you can believe it. I did that for a year, and then I found my way to the West Coast, and I started working at Charles Schwab and Company, and I kind of grew up there, moved up through the ranks, became an, an executive. So my last job with them, where you know maybe, maybe I gained some industry notoriety and it kind of was able to launch me, is I helped Schwab build the national sales and marketing program to help wirehouses see the light and become more fiduciary advisors. So that period of time now was, we started in about 2004, went through 2009. I essentially helped build the business from nothing to now represents hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to Schwab. So it was a great run. And what I did in 2009, my business been in existence for now a decade, is I felt the, the market was underserved with advice think on the same side of the table advisor advice. So I, I learned a lot, built a lot in you know structuring Schwab's program to help wirehouse advisors start their firm. And I felt I could make a business out of it. So that's what I did. So I just felt at the time I could do more, go deeper and really help advisors set up businesses, grow them, advance them, as you mentioned earlier, and then ultimately realize the value of their life's work. So that's what I did. It's been a uh, a good run. And as you know, I've been building it for the better part of a decade. So on the Texas Instruments Calculator, do you still happen to own that by any chance? I do not. It might be, the, or maybe I do. It might be in a box somewhere, but I think I, 
Yeah, I don't have it. That's, that's actually a good question. Maybe I'll go find it. We could. I mean, because I think on eBay, that's like an antique. It's like one of the first, you know, <laughs> like having one of the original computers. Or I remember my first cell phone that was actually a physical box inside of the car. That could be worth some money. So you might have to do a little search for that. I love it. Yeah, I'll give it a go. But that was the days back when I started. The firm's called Sage Ruddy. It's still in existence. And we were essentially had a TI calculator and a Quotron. Now I've really oh my dated gosh. myself. Amazing. <laughs> so, so talk about advisor growth, John. Talk about some of the gaps that, you, that you've seen and maybe some of the core competencies where you've helped the most firms evolve and grow as a result of your analysis and your consultation. Yeah, I'll, I'll take you through it. So advisor growth has evolved. You know, I'm proud to say we've, we've now helped over 250 firms, over 300 billion in assets. You know, they cumulatively manage. So if you think about that, that's over 10% of the total addressable market. So we're super proud of the fact that we've been able to make that level of influence. And what we're doing for the industry now more than ever is we're still setting up businesses. So we still help the breakaways we are really case cracking some of the most complicated business management issues in the industry, whether it's related to compensation, equity, organizational structure, succession planning. And then now, because it's really what our clients are asking us to do, and it's, and it's a really big need in the market because it's way underserved, but we're also structuring transactions, M&A transactions for the industry, which is now the single biggest growing part of our business. Yeah, so let's break down each one of those because I think that's interesting. So we have folks in various life cycles of the industry that will be listening to the show. So if you think about that concept of a breakaway, if I'm still sitting in some type of an employee environment, being it a bank or wire or any type of employee model, what are some of the key things that should be on my mind if I'm thinking about leaving that environment and looking to form my own firm? What would be that short list of considerations or best practices? Yeah, I, I think the single biggest opportunity for advisors considering it is how you come through making a move to independence because there's a big risk-reward scenario, as we all know, because advisors put their livelihoods on the line when you make any sort of transition. We know this. So I think the the juice coming through, it has to be worth you know kind of the squeeze, and that has to benefit clients and the team. So I think a lot of advisors have to have that valid business reason, and, and one of the things we do is we help them think through it. But the big buckets are, especially if you're you know, a larger group, is how are you going to structure your firm, think your platform. You can go it alone or you can do it with help from like a Stratos, your firm does it, others do. Or ends, I think I shouldn't say or, ends, what is your branding going to be? What is your client experience going to be? And really have kind of that North Star of where you're going and not just think of it as a linear, I'm now captive in a wirehouse and now I'm going to be independent. So you really have to have a, a strong conviction of why you're doing it. So let me ask you just to continue on that theme for a little bit. If you're running and operating a business, you may have some legacy issues already. You are what you are. But if you're launching and you haven't formed yet, are there any sort of new twists or wrinkles that you see firms doing that you think represent where the puck is headed versus sort of the norm of what people have done as they've launched firms over the last five to 10 years? And that could be structure. It could be platform. It could be technology. What's sort of that new North Star standard that I should be thinking about if I'm preparing to launch? I, I think some of the opportunities are some of the best teams we've worked with. I'll give you an example of one team in New York, a Merrill Lynch team. They, they, you know, a larger team, 
they essentially rebranded their total experience. So a move away from investments, maybe more to wealth planning. And they also had the opportunity to change their pricing model. I think that's like a huge opportunity, Jeff, for advisors in transition. It sounds counterintuitive to change pricing through a transition, but it gives you the opportunity to reset so you can recalibrate pricing to value versus thinking that's really like 25 years old, which is pricing to investment management, which is basis point pricing. And can so you ex- if you think about it, there's a mismatch, right? The value in advice is now more in wealth planning, life planning, you know, structuring complex solutions and less correlated to investments, right? So the, maybe the pricing model should reflect it. Okay, so that's a great point. So my initial thought when you explain that is that they were actually changing their fee structure, what they charge, but they're really changing the way that they charge for advice to be more value, service, and experience-driven as opposed to some percentage of assets under management. That is correct. So, and I'm not suggesting that that's going to become mainstream, but there are several firms out there that are starting or considering maybe to disrupt the industry via pricing. So, I think we'll see more attempts, right? Maybe false dawns in the past where robos, you know, robos drop pricing to 20 basis points and now all RIAs have to move in kind and go out of business. But the data actually doesn't suggest it. It suggests that pricing has not really changed at all for a decade, essentially 78 basis points. All right. So let's move on to the second theme that you mentioned. So helping breakaways was the first. Compensation and equity, really entity structure. And I'm going to actually sort of add a little bit of a, uh, additional flavor to that. We, you know, we talk about this war for talent, that great firms are seeking great people. So what do you see as a best practices in terms of how to find great folks and what type of incentive or compensation plans need to be in place to retain those folks and make them long-term partners for your organization? And I know you spend a lot of time on this. You've helped us and others that I know on this topic, and I'd love to hear what some of your thoughts are on sort of best execution. Yeah, I I think one of the biggest problems in the industry is talent. So if you if you think about the profession, three hundred thousand or so advisors exist, a third are at or near retirement age, which is two hundred thousand. Yet the channel, the independent channel, is growing. Right? We all know this. Now almost four trillion total in the channel, independent channel, RA channel. So if you think about that, there's a big talent gap. So not enough people are entering the industry. So what's happening in the market, especially in in large cities, is there's a relentless and a very focused talent grab that's happening. Hard to find people. So what's happening with our clients now is, well, how do you find people? That's the first question you asked. And some of the best practices we see is always be looking for talent. Some of our best clients, they're, what are they doing? They're networking at conferences in the industry. They're networking locally, like they're asking their clients, they're always looking for people. They're asking their friends. So I think if your objective as an advisor or advisory firm is to grow, you always have to be searching for talent. And it, and it can't be, hey, let's, let's put a posting up on LinkedIn. Let's put a posting up on Indeed or whatever. That is a very impersonal way to go about it. So I think you got to think through always be recruiting. It's like always be selling, like maybe trying to find the next new client, always be recruiting for talent. And then the other thing, which I have like a huge passion for this. Sometimes advisors think it's this linear relationship. Hey, we'll give you 
we're going to track people through and we'll give them a compensation package and some of the traditional things we talk about. But especially next generation people think Gen Y, Gen Z, they want a sense of belonging. Like what is the purpose of your firm? What are we doing? What are we solving for? Like my, my, my company is trying to help. That's what I tell people when, you know, we're hiring someone right now. But what are we doing? It's like we're, we're helping successful advisory firms become more successful, you know, driving business excellence. That's kind of the, the mantra. And then in turn, the consumer benefits, because if the advisors are better business managers, the consumer gets better advice, which is better for, you know, all the U.S. think household worth. So I think you have to have that. It's like an employee value proposition because compensation and all these other things that we technically get hired to do is just a outcome of that. And sometimes advisors think of it bottoms up, right? Here's just the comp plan. And that just, I think, is maybe a commoditized way of thinking. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, several thoughts come to mind just listening to you chat. One is, I think it's critically important to have a blueprint, right? Before you become what you want to become, you have to know what you want to become. And a lot of people don't know that. So thinking about their organization, not as an advisor, but as a business owner, as a CEO, have a blueprint. So know, you know, what's the next role that I want to fill in my firm? What responsibilities would there be? And it's not bad to know, you know, two or three or four steps in. As this grows, what are the types of services and talents and abilities that I want to attract to the firm to have that blueprint. So you need to kind of know what you want to look like in order to be able to move in that direction. So I think a blueprint is important. And that constant awareness of looking for talent, I couldn't agree more. If you find incredibly talented people, which are hard to find, you may not even have an immediate role for them. But the bigger your organization gets, you bring great people in, they're going to be great contributors. So just being open-minded there. And then I think retention. Once you have winners, once you have people that are meaningful contributors, you have to find ways to retain them. And compensation is a baseline. It's not the solution. They need to be paid well and have a path. But I really like your, your, your comment about purpose and mission. Not only do they want to be making a good living, they probably need to know what the end result is. My being successful, our firm being successful, how are we affecting other lives in the industry? That greater purpose and mission, I think, leads to contentment and also is an important part of retention. Jeff, one thing to think about, too, because your initial question is, well, how does compensation and equity fit into all of this? So you did a great job summarizing it. And if you can memorialize the things you just said, the tactic of compensation and equity and how you think of next generation, whether it be distributing ownership, whether it be succession planning, whether it be incentive compensation, that should simply just be reflective of where you're going. So when we get hired to do compensation and equity mandates, that's what we need to do is is figure out where's the firm going and why, what roles are needed and why, how do you want to grow and why, and then the comp plan simply and the equity plan simply reflects it. That's why, you know, we're doing a couple of dozen of those projects each and every year for, you know, very large firms, think hundreds of contributors to the 12-person team. It has to be reflective of that, right? So, or... You know, if there's no purpose to the plan, how can you optimize compensation and equity? It's impossible, right, if you think about it. No, that that makes good sense. And I I really think all those things have to be aligned for people to stay. And and staying is one piece of it, right? But to stay and to have a high level of engagement and energy about the role over time, there's got to be that purpose, that 
fit that mission about what they're doing and appreciation of the contributions that they're making. And I know this sounds kind of silly, but I do think culture is incredibly important to have that alignment and esprit de corps. We have someone whose role, they came into relationship management and they're almost like the social activities slash leader that they get us to participate in these corporate challenges and, you know, all these events and fundraisers and picnic, I mean, just a whole host of things. And I think it makes people feel more like they belong to something and more like a family and, and a mission to your point, as opposed to a job that they show up to collect a paycheck. And when you increase that level of sort of fulfillment and energy and enthusiasm, not only do people stay, but I think they stay and they continue to perform at a high level. So super important. Super important. And one last thought with it, where our industry is really failing, I would say it's teams, it's stakeholders. Where large firms are still advantaged is they have the ability to develop their people because they have the size and scale to develop training programs, to have mentors and things like that. Every firm in our industry, I don't care if you have 20 billion in assets, is essentially still a small business. So where the industry has to do better is developing its people. And it is kind of, uh, you know, kind of difficult because it's hard to justify hiring human resource people and developers or even for owners like you and me, right? Even though I know you do a good job, I think I do a pretty good job too in mentoring. We still fall down in that way. So what I'm saying is if you want to keep your people you have to have growth in your firm so they feel that there's a career path. So young, talented, hungry people, and they're out there, they want to know how they're going to grow within your firm. And if you don't have a development program or maybe an eye towards the future, like we were saying earlier, organizational structure, how's, how it's going to evolve, you'll lose your people because they'll become bored or disengaged. So I think that's so important and we could be doing better. Yeah, it's really well said. And I and I honestly think, and again, I, I know I, I actually feel like I sound old when I say some of these things, and maybe it's because I am. I think more and more and more people aren't willing to be patient and wait three or four or five or six years to know that path. They almost want to know what that pathway looks like as they enter an organization. I have my son who just graduated from college a year ago, and there's just, you know, there's an appetite to do more and contribute and to see a pathway. And I try to tell him, be patient. You've been there You've barely figured out where the restrooms are and what your general role and responsibilities are. But I don't think that's him. I think that's symptomatic of this new generation. Very early on, they want to see a clear pathway. Tell me what I need to do and tell me if I accomplish that, what are my opportunities? I just think it's kind of where we are. So we need to recognize that and be cognizant to attract young talent and to retain young talent. So with that said, let's kind of move to the third spoke. So you talked a little bit about consulting breakaways and helping identify the pathway and the tools towards independence. We talked a little bit about identifying and retaining talent, compensation, equity, purpose. Talk a little bit about that sort of final stage for advisors and for firms with 30 or 40% of our industry in less than 10 years looking to exit and monetize. I'd like for you to talk about it in two ways. What are some of the ways people can look to monetize their business? And what should we be thinking about from a market standpoint with an aging demographic and not a lot of young talent coming in. What does that look like if I'm looking to sell my firm over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. You know, Jeff, I, I think it's interesting. So our firm, we are involved in transactions. So we do mergers and acquisitions, you know, to be clear where we play a role is we do valuation for firms. So think, you know, how much is my firm worth implied value? 
And then the other piece we do is transaction advisory, where we, we kind of stop is we're not a recruiting firm. So we're not going to say, hey, I want to buy a firm, find me someone who's thinking of selling. We don't do that. We do that a little bit opportunistically, but there's a you know group of folks in the industry that, that do that. So we're more involved with transaction structuring. But to answer your question, I think founders of firms or owners in general should really be thinking in 10-year horizons. You brought the number up 10 years, but I think that's, that's about right. If you want a, a structure and orderly exit for your life's work, that's what you should be thinking about. So there's really two ways to go about it. The first one's very hard, is structuring an internal exit, which you know we all call succession planning or continuity planning. And that, that part is really difficult. There's not a lot of firms out there and I can go through you know, maybe some, an example or two if we want that has been successful with it. And then the flip side of it is, well, maybe we should look for a partner, which could be, you know, think a minority partner, a financial partner, or a full sale to either a strategic or a financial. So those are the options out there. The good news now versus even five years ago, 10 years ago, there was virtually no options. But now there's lots of options. So liquidity has come in. There's path to get capital from debt providers and equity providers. So what that means, and I think what the implication is, is that there's a lot of folks out there that want to invest in the space. And then for the owner of a firm, how do they actually sift through the right partner? Because different capital coming in has different implications for sale of a firm. So I think that's going to be the, you know, the new challenge in the future is how do founders of firms think through their end game? I know I want to leave in 10 years. How do I actually get there? Which is two pieces. One is readiness. Is my firm ready to do an internal transaction or an external transaction and why? And then the second piece is what is the ideal transaction for me as maybe the owner, my team as a constituency, and my clients. And I think those are the three major underpinnings. Most of the industry, you know what they do, Jeff, is they do the exact opposite, which is what is my valuation? And now I know my valuation. And then when I'm ready to leave, somebody will just buy me for my valuation. I wish it worked that way. It does not. It doesn't work that way. Can't wait to the end and think someone's just going to stroke you a check for your valuation. No, it's, it's a great point. And, and I do think you're right that not only a lot of the smaller enterprises, which people might suspect, but even some meaningfully, you know, sized firms have that same mentality. What they don't realize is when you go through a succession plan, it's not a transaction, right? You can sign on the dotted line, but there's a lot more involved. You're not making widgets, right? You've got a lot of interpersonal relationships and connections with the clients and how's that story going to be crafted? Are the clients gaining a whole set of additional resources in a team and are they losing you? Or is it sort of this gradual process and messaging that takes place over time and that's properly teed up to minimize attrition and minimize disruption to those constituencies? Because I agree with you. You've obviously got the buyer and the seller. You have the staff and you have the clients. And probably the clients are most important because that's how we've built our livelihoods and if you put the clients first and their objectives and then the staff, chances are you as a seller and the buyer are going to be very well served by making sure that those other constituencies are thought of first and thought of highly and what that outcome is going to be. 
Jeff, that's that's so true. And the other thing, maybe just to throw out some big numbers for the audience, all firms have value in, in, in some sense, but if you look at large firms, large independent entities that probably drive higher valuations, the industry is becoming more concentrated. So 4% of the independent market controls 60% of the assets. So think around 2.5 trillion. And then if you think about the implied value of that, again, at 80 basis points, that, that valuation number is you know, nearing 50 billion. So think about that, 50 billion in liquidity is required, maybe a third over the next 10 years. You wanna be the one that's prepared. You wanna be the property, think of it yourself as a property, a really great property to buy and that is prepared. Think readiness versus a fire drill. Because you know, it's almost, I'm not saying there's liquidity prices, but think about that. If everyone tried to sell simultaneously, not everyone could get liquidity, right? So if you're a buyer, who are you going to buy? The firm who's the most attractive and the most ready. So I think, I think it's something to think about. Yeah, those you don't are, want to wait to the end. Those are two great points. So I want to sort of unwrap two of them. So one is consolidation. I think there are some misconceptions there. Consolidation sounds like there are fewer and fewer firms, where in fact, I think it's the exact opposite. The number of RIAs and the number of firms is actually expanding. And it's less a consolidation of firms, but more a concentration or consolidation of assets at fewer firms that are growing at a much greater pace. Would you agree with that? Well, not only do I agree with it, but it plays out in the numbers, right? So if you just look at market sizing, that's what we purchase. That's what, what's playing out in the numbers. So I think a number of billion-dollar firms with AUM over a billion right now is north of 600, nearing 700. Five years ago, is under 300. So that's a doubling of firms of size. But the total number of firms is larger. So it's not consolidation. It's concentration because in the end, firms will get bigger and there's reasons why that's happening we can talk about, but there's still room for everyone. Firms are going independent. Advisors are carving out of firms. So that's really the trend. Consolidation is not necessarily true. It, it, it is concentration and it's not just a concept that plays out in the numbers. Yeah. One other theme I'd like for you to chat a little bit about, John. So you know, I've never seen an environment during my tenure, which is three decades now, where size has mattered more. And I think it may be for a whole host of reasons, right? We're on this kind of 10-year, not entirely bull market run, but pretty pretty solid straight line. And private equity, there seems to be a tremendous amount of money floating around. I think there's a greater awareness of what great businesses that we run, the consistency of the revenues, the fact that these businesses don't require, you know, massive spends on infrastructure and equipment. I mean, they're relatively simple businesses, relatively consistent revenue streams. And size matters now because of the fact that there's so much capital out there. The multiples really grow rapidly and they grow sort of almost at a mind bog to a mind boggling level when you talk about really, really big shops. So can you talk about sort of the disparity you see between kind of a nice little, you know, 50 to $100 million asset shop versus a shop that's got several billion and kind of that differentiation and maybe why some of that spread exists. The way we're thinking about the market now, Jeff, is really in three ways. One is it may not even be large, small. It's more niche, niche firms, the big middle, which is essentially a homogenous group that aren't really doing anything different than scaled providers. 
So you either want scale or you want to be niche, but never in the middle. So what the middle is, is what we've known for the better part of 20 years, right? Think asset allocation, simple financial planning. And that's where most advisors hang their hat. And in the future, those firms will still exist, but it'll be harder to, to grow against firms on the outside, which is scale and niche. Niche means you're really, really good at something. Here's like one of the best niches I've ever heard. There's a, not our client, but I met him at, at a conference. He owns a firm. You know what they do? They provide financial planning and investment advice to not only fishermen, but competitive bass fishermen that you see on TV. That's all they do. And they're known for it. And they have 200 million in assets. Like that is a niche. That's not going anywhere, right? It's, it's brilliant. Have have That's brilliant. It's crazy. Isn't never, it brilliant, I right? Like so, it, it's brilliant. Yeah. Right. So it's lifestyle. It's linked to what the advisor, what he loves. He loves doing. He's there all the time. And he's, he is the person, right? So then on the other, the other side is what you're talking about, which is the scale providers, which are getting very large. And why they're advantaged and they will continue to be advantaged is because they will have the ability to bring in functional specialists. And what I mean by functional specialists is if you're small, you have to do it all. You have to do the investments. You have to do the planning. You have to do the selling. You have to do the tech. You have to do everything. But large firms are advantaged because they can bring on functional specialists that are great at a certain function. And then, of course, empower the advisor to deliver a fantastic client experience. So the big middle that I was referencing will not be able to keep up with large firms because they will just reinvest. I mean, there's firms out there, you know, folks in our study group, Jeff, others that have tech spends that are that are eight digits. Like, how can you compete with that? Right. You can't. So that's that's why there'll be more concentration. And when we think about how it links into value, niche firms smaller and the scaled firms will drive higher valuations. Why is that? Because it's simply just a risk equation. Because if you're larger in scale, you're less risky, you're likely growing faster. And those are the, you know, really the two primary drivers of value, growth yeah, so, and risk, lower risk. So to summarize, I think what you're saying is either be different or be big. And either one can help you sort of maximize value. If there's some uniqueness to your firm, what you do, how you do it, who you do it for, or you just do a heck of a lot of it with size and scale, those are the two ways to find yourself in the upper range of whatever multiples might apply. Yeah, and it plays out in the numbers too because most of the industry is hanging on. Like I was mentioning earlier, large firms, the compound annual growth rate for larger firms, think 500 million and up, is around 10% or maybe it's 11%. This is real data, not me to say this. And then rest of industry, you know where they're growing at, Jeff? They're not growing at all. There's no growth. Five years around 3%, which is essentially market. So the big middle is just holding on. They're hanging on. And that might be okay. But when you think about it in an M&A framework or value framework, attracting team members, any framework really, it's just not an attractive property, right? Absolutely. So last question. You teed up the concept of thinking in these sort of 10-year timeframes, whether it's your business plan, whether it's you know a 10-year plan towards exit or monetization, if we look at John Fury and advisor growth strategies in 10 years from now, where would you envision the firm 
and what type of contributions or services would you be providing for you to feel fulfilled as a principal and as a CEO that your firm is doing the things that you want them to be doing? Yeah, what a great question. You know, when, when, we, when we vision out, we use this amazing tool a lot, and I just want to share this, a, a tool called Traction. It's an accountability system, and it forces you to do that, think 10-year vision, then work backwards to kind of do your plan, three-year plan, one-year plan, then quarterly plan. So it's, it's effective. A lot of advisors are using it in our industry. So all that means is we're practicing what we're preaching. That's like tenant number one. We want to be a firm that mirrors our clients, right? We do what we say we're going to do. More functional experts, more planning, all these investments that we talk about. But where I, where I see the firm going and what I like it to be known for simply is just a firm that's advanced the profession and has really helped advisors realize their life's work. So that's where we'd like to be. Bigger profile. And then the, uh, the services, I think, is more scale. It's still the things we talked about earlier, but we'll be doing it more efficiently at more scale. Sounds exciting. Sounds exciting. And speaking of sounding exciting, we're going to move to our final component, which is podcast karaoke to allow John Fury to, to belt out with passion and fervor, one of his favorite songs. So with that, I'll hand over to John's musical side. All right. Now for our karaoke segment, our resident musician, Alex Dorr, is going to belt out with George Benson. Thanks for that, John. Never give up on a good thing. Remember what makes you happy. Never give up on a good thing. If love is what you got, you got a lot. Money's tight. He's working every night. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.